every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the tree. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, our outdoor living hour. And if you follow along in our home maintenance calendar, you know the second Saturday of the month, we're talking trees. And today, we have seasonal storm prep to cover along with our tree of the month, which is actually a the canary date palm. And to talk trees, we have ISA certified arborist Sarah Maitland from Save a Tree in Studio, along with special guest Rebecca Senior, uh, arborist, master gardener from the County Extension Office. Welcome. And if you would like to talk trees, one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight. Rosie for you. Text questions can be sent to four one one nine two three or email us at info at rosieonthehouse.com. Let's kick it off with our tree of the month. And is a palma tree? I know we've covered saguaro too. Well, it is a tree <laughs> when we talk about it amongst ourselves. Um, probably you could say tree form. It is a, a tree form, palm. You have to climb it to cut, to trim it. <laughs> yeah, you sure do. But yeah. they, they get big. The difference is um, palm trees are monocots. They're not dicots. And and what happens when the seed emerges from the ground, there's either one leaf or two. And a monocot has one and a dicot has two. And palms um, have one. And they're monocots. They are um, like grass plants, corn plants. Palm trees are all monocots. And so this month, or this month, we're talking about the Canary Island date, and um, it was started to. They started to really grow these at the turn of the century, and it was kind of a European thing. It was it was prestigious, and all the wealthy um, people in Europe really loved this palm, and they really started to cultivate it. But it's very slow growing, and very wide spanned, and and so you see. Um, I'll tell you my story. When I built my house in 96, I, I bought three little palm trees in a one-gallon container. I said, I got to have palm trees. <laughs> and within 10 years, I took them out because they had outgrown the space. And um, they have a big, huge dagger on them. Um, but they're very, very beautiful, wide, widespread. Um, and they are uh, dioecious, correct? Yes. So that means that... Okay. One palm would have the male-type flowers with the pollen. One would have the female-type flowers producing the fruit. On the same tree? On separate trees. Separate trees. So you've got a female canary date palm tree Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a male. Completely separate trees. So you may not see fruit on your palm tree, and you might wonder, uh, is there something wrong? Well, uh, it's just that you got a guy. (laughs) And that means less pickup later. Less pickup, yeah. Yeah, they do tend to get a bit messy, um, and they have they have a fruit. And, you know, it's kind of almost a yellowish orange stalk that comes out with the fruit, and they're best to prune those out um, in in the spring. Um, I think we're looking at um, y- you want to get the seed pods out, but you want to get those cut out before they turn into all the messy dates. They're they're so sharp, the little daggers at the at the base of the fronds that getting in there to get the seed pods is difficult. So, And one of the new features that we've been talking about is as we come to the tree of the month, having a 
public place people can go see these because there's a lot of different types of palm trees. The palm tree we're talking about today isn't what you see out the studio behind us. The long, tall ones that have just like a few little fronds on the top. So um, what you're seeing out there are fan palms. Those are Washingtonias. Um, the Canary Island date is is um, is a Phoenix Canariensis, and so there a lot of what you see out there is the Phoenix Dactylifera, which is a, more of a gray green in the frond. The Canary Canariensis is more green. It's a darker green, wider, um, you know, really as wide almost as it is tall in a lot of areas. But you see a really beautiful stand of them at Desert Ridge Marketplace as you drive into the marketplace. Um, those are really beautiful. The ASU um, or U of A Campus Arboretum has a really a nice website, and you can actually even go on, and it says find this plant on our campus, and you can click on it, and you can walk to the different trees. So. And, you know, all of our three major universities have great arboretums, U of A, ASU, and uh, NAU all have uh, their their own arboretum, and uh, the the tree council has done events at all of them, and it's quite impressive. And then uh, Rebecca, you have another one at the Capitol building. Oh yes, well um, there's a, a very large uh, Phoenix Canariensis, the Canary Island date palm, um, at the Capitol building, and they can get sixty or, or eighty feet tall. Um, we don't usually see them that tall here. And so this one was quite impressive. Um, and you said it's on the north side of the building. So as I'm heading west, because it's a one-way street on that side, um, I can't remember if it's, is it Washington or, and then Jefferson or Jefferson, Washington? That, <laughs> Jefferson is south of Washington. Okay. So Washington's the one that you'll be on going west. Uh-huh. Uh, you're coming around Wesley, Bolin Plaza. Yes. Where is it along that? Is it all the way to the Capitol or is it yeah, still in the park? No, it's it's in the Capitol area, not the uh, monument area. So, um, and it's just the very tallest and um, and they're also quite wide. I mean, they get much larger in diameter than the date palm, the, um, the as, as Sarah said, the Phoenix dactylifera or just the common date palm that produces the fruit. The uh, Canary Island date palm produces fruit and it is edible, but it's not... It's got a thin amount of the um, type of the fruit part that we eat. So I don't recall that it tastes very good either. It's probably not as high if, in yeah, <laughs> sugar. If it did, you would find them, uh, you know, in, in the stores, <laughs> at farmer's markets, uh, yeah. in recipes. You know, if, if th- there's a reason they're, they're not there. They're not that good. And uh, on that, the one at the Capitol, so you're closer to 19th Avenue at that point. You're closer to 19th so Avenue. So if you hit mm-hmm. the... Uh, Capital Times building, and mm-hmm. you haven't seen it. Circle around and try it again. <laughs> yeah, and uh, really, you can see uh, palms at, at resorts. Just drive by any resort, go to any shopping center. It's identifying which one you're looking at um, to know if you're looking at the Phoenix. Uh, uh, well, let's see. I'll just call it the Canary Island date palm. So, yeah. if you're looking at that Canary Island date palm, and as Sarah said, the leaf shape on the Washingtonia is like a palm, and the um, the other date palms have like a feather look. So that would be your first clue that you're looking at one of the date palms. And then if it has a very wide, like a barrel at the top where the head is, and it's a wider diameter trunk, it's probably the Canariensis, the Canary Island date palm, and not the 
the regular date palm. If you go to rosieonthehouse.com, on the quick links on the homepage, we've got a link directly to the uh, to a, a page where you can see this, along with the locations that we've mentioned on where you can go see it out. You know, it's one thing to look at it on a computer, but if you're considering a palm or you're thinking about one for your yard, going and seeing them out in other settings can help you determine which one's right, like you had mentioned earlier. Sarah, you planted them, three of them, as one gallons, and 10 years later, you had to rip them all out. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty green to palm trees when I came to Arizona. Um, but the Canary Island date, there's also a really good website from the University of Florida. Ed Gilman is one of the people that is really well-renowned in our industry. And it'll show you a lot of the deficiencies that can occur. Um, palms really need a lot of magnesium, and you see a lot of potassium deficiency in a Canary Island. And um, it's a really good website. I'll have you put that up. And it also shows a lot of diseases and things that that um, canary island palms can get. You know, they suffer from fusarian, from the leviopsis, uh, trunk rot. It's, that's a tough one. Yeah. And, um, and then there's a lot of deficiencies. And, and there's, there's some weevils and some boars, but things that we don't have here yet in the valley. Um, but it's interesting to look at it. So. And how far in elevation can you plant this palm tree? I, I can't imagine much more than a, probably about 2,000, 3,000 foot elevation. I don't know the answer to that. Do you, Rebecca? Well, I have a, a, a few things that I was reading a, a website in preparation for this uh, talk this morning and was surprised to learn that the um, Canary Island date palm uh, can take quite a bit more cold and um, they had a picture of one that had snow, a young one, uh, in between the fronds. So I'm not saying that it thrives in a snow area, but it didn't completely die. <laughs> well, the one website that I did read said that it actually thrives at, at 50 degrees, but can't take more than 20. You know, the, that's the coldest. That works for so elevation. Kind of so then just check your, you know, if that, that covers Camp Verde. Um, and, and probably even a little bit higher than that as well. It seems to tolerate the heat just fine, though. One triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you if you'd like to join the conversation. Well, inquiring minds just gotta know if the male tree is that much cleaner. When we get back, I want to find out how do you sex a palm tree <laughs> and how old does it need to be? How do trees? get onto the internet they log on <laughs> <laughs> what time of night was it when you wrote that one Gary <laughs> when the dust storm hit at 10.30 last night <laughs> I guess parts of the valley really got hit last night I saw the lightning I didn't get anything up north but no we could see the lightning to the east of us but we didn't get get anything either so one, one of these days we'll get rain again out at the Whitman Plantation. But as we were going to break, Rosie wanted to know the difference on how to tell between the male and the female the Canary Island date palm, which is our tree of the month here. And their answer is there's really no good answer. Yeah, we don't know. John might know. You know, we're missing John here. He, John's actually a mentor to both Rebecca and I. Um, but I do not know, and I would have to call a, a grower friend of mine, Tommy, and from Baseline Trees, and see see he would have that information. Are, are we on the same time zone as Idaho? Can <laughs> yeah. we wake him up on his vacation? <laughs> well, now, 
the, the tree of the month is the canary day palm. And we've already determined the female is the only one that produces fruit, which is no good to eat and very messy in your yard. So it seemed to me, if that were something I felt I needed in my landscaping scheme, I would insist on only the male. <laughs> I don't think you can, but I, I, I would. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I, I want to plant palm trees because they're just they're just different, and they they give a different texture to the whole landscape. And um, Orioles actually like palm trees for nesting, so. So if you're a bird watcher, you can attract them with the palm trees. You would almost have to – you couldn't plant it as a one-gallon like Sarah did. You'd have to go to, like, one of the palm tree farms that you see out on the 303 and about northern by uh, the zoo and pick out a big one from there at the time that they would be blooming in the spring. And so then you have to go – with the Canary I, Island date, the um, you I do want to get a more mature one because they are slow growing, but they'll grow faster than you think. They really will. They'll and I, I bet you those growers even probably have like a little drone that they can send up and we'll do a bird's eye view over them going, okay, we're picking out that one. Sex them with a drone. I, I, that's what I would do. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, just, well. I just wanted to know how it was done. That's all. A good grower would be able to tell you what uh, you are buying, I'm quite sure, because one way to propagate besides seed is to cut the little plants that grow at the base. So if it's the uh, female and they cut a little bit off, it'll be a female, a a little plant growing at the base. Got it. Okay. It's vegetative reproduction as opposed to seed. (laughs) Okay. All right. Another one of our talking points today has to do with... uh, the Palo Verde boar beetle that if you're new to Arizona and you've been dive-bombed by what looks like a flying uh, monster. Yeah, they started coming out about two weeks ago at my house, and I was kind of shocked because I got a new house, and I'm like, oh, no, I didn't know this was a problem. Um, Palo Verde um, beetles are very large. Um, you'll, you'll find them out there, and they're, they're a couple inches long, two to three inches long. But what happens is they come out about this time of year, and they fly around for about 30 days. They don't eat anything. They emerge out of the ground. They fly around for 30 days, and then they tend to go back into the same hole or the same area, and they lay their eggs. They come out and mate and lay their eggs. And um, the larvae live in the roots of a lot of different trees, not just Palo Verdes. We've found them in several different trees. Um, and they live there and they eat and chew and eat and chew until they come out two or three years later. I think they've got a pretty long lifespan of the larva. And um, the roots look like Swiss cheese. It, it's amazing when you, when you pull them out and kind of the biggest, ugliest looking three-inch long larva you could imagine. But that's a Palo Verde um, boar. And obviously, if they can do that to the roots, they could be very destructive to the trees. But Correct. the animal itself, it's not capable of biting uh, humans or oh, any kind I of think it could. poison. You would not <laughs> want to put your, your finger near those mandibles. They're, they're quite ferocious You'd think ferocious they can looking. chew through, uh, yeah. <laughs> you can put a stick in front of the mandibles, and it will grab on, and you can pick it up. It'll latch on. So, uh, but know. it's not anything that's poisonous, like this no. scorpion sting no. or snake bite. It's no, and yeah, their whole goal is to mate. So, 
And uh, if you've ever been on a bike and one hits you in the face, it feels like a sting, a bee sting. <laughs> that could be that could be a problem. I've had yeah. that problem they a couple of times. They don't seem to be the best coordinated flyers. <laughs> when you see them flying in the air, it's, it's not like they seem to be under control of what they're doing. They just kind of, <laughs> and then they hit something and fall to the ground and then like walk around and try and fly again. When I walked in the building this morning, there was one sitting in the middle of the lobby. The smartest beetle because he realized, hey, this is a cool spot, but he can't really function in the lobby of a building. They tend to be attracted to the light. So I've been putting my porch lights on so that I look out and try to catch them so they don't infect my trees. <laughs> Um, but Rebecca, you pointed something out to me this morning on how to tell the difference between the male and the female on the Palaverde boar. Yeah, um, this particular beetle, the male and the female are different sizes, most often. The female is quite a bit larger, um, and the female, who is responsible for then burrowing back into the ground, laying the eggs for the next generation, has a, uh, besides a larger body, a pointed end, the ovipositor. So they do look different. And the, the bigger one's a female, uh, but regardless, when you see one, you know, you, uh, that's why you wear shoes, so you can... You could. <laughs> you could if you're, if you're brave and maybe... If Compost you it. <laughs> you don't mind that big crunch sound because they are uh, super crunchy on the outside and gushy on the inside, so it's not something I do. Um, you can tell uh, that you have them, if you don't see one, by the exit holes. Uh, around the base of the trunk of a tree, and they're usually going to be like no more than three foot away. They're about the size of a quarter. And uh, the so holes, that's another clue. The holes don't look like the beetle crawled out of it. I mean, they're they're smaller than the but bug itself. But they're about a quarter size. Yeah. Um, and and it will be a hole where something emerged out, so it's cleaner. Um, I was just at a property this week where a tree failed, half of a tree failed, and the girl said. These holes just appeared two weeks in the last two weeks, and there was literally 50 holes around the base of this tree. And I, I think, you know, that batch of eggs all came out at one time, and it had been eating the roots of this tree. Typically, you see one or two around a tree, and it's a really clean exit hole. It doesn't look like something was digging in it. it it's, it's about the size of a quarter. No, that was a great tip on the coming from emerging Whereas something digging in like a, a ground a squirrel will a have small a, mouse. a mound by it. And can you treat it? Or when you have it, it's it just... It, go ahead, um, I don't know of a treatment really to recommend other than, uh, you know, smash them. I was looking for love in all the wrong places that's for the Palaberti beetles that are flying around right now. It's their love song. <laughs> there are plenty of wrong places, right? one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you if you'd like to talk trees. We've got ISA Certified Arborist uh, Sarah Maitland from Integrity Save a Tree in studio, along with Rebecca Sr., the Arborist Master Gardener for U of A uh, Corporate Extension Office. And we'll talk about that program a little bit in the last segment. Sounds like you guys have done quite a... Uh, you know, 200 students a year, and it's gone all virtual, so we'll get a little uh, little inside peek. And if you're interested in taking the Master Gardener class, what that entails. But we have a text question that leads into our uh, 
our tip of the week, which is uh, seasonal storm prep. And this homeowner allowed his neighbor to cut a branch of their Australian bottle tree that was hanging over into the neighbor's yard. So now it's lopsided, and he's wanting to know, should he reshape the tree to make it symmetrical? If he left it like that, um, is it more vulnerable to getting blown over in the wind? How much can he trim during the summer without stressing the tree? Um, Bottle trees do okay with trimming in the summer, and we do try to keep the end weight reduced on those. Um, And the end weight. The end weight, yeah. And aesthetically, it, it's hard What's to picture. What's the end weight? Okay. So um, trees, a lot of people um, trim trees up, you know, strip them up on the interior. It allows the tree to only grow on the ends of the tree. And we call that line tailing, and we, we, we frown upon that. But um, what we really want to do when we're pruning and getting trees ready for storms is to reduce end weight. And so if you look at a tree in a storm, um, it's, it's moving in all different directions. Trees use their leaves and their branches to dissipate wind energy. And so we try to take weight off of the branches and bring them into the core. And so the weight is more balanced. And so this tree, it's hard to picture <clears throat> how, how out of balance it is. But it might just be aesthetic or it might just be that, you know, you come in and do um, some good uh, reduction cuts to a lateral branch to balance the tree. And then for the, uh, other trees, and this one was particular to the homeowner's question, the Australian bottle tree. Rebecca, you were mentioning you saw a Palo Verde blown over on the way, and our desert natives can be yes. very susceptible to uh, storm damage. Yes, they can. And again, uh, a lot of the problem is that end weight. Um, that Sarah mentioned, and it's the um, it's the way that trees grow. They grow at their tips, and so that outer part of the canopy where um, that new growth is. Sometimes you need to give them haircuts. I often talk about it that way. You, they there that's where they grow, and you need to cut them back so that there's less weight. Um, and of course, our native trees take advantage of every bit of water, and can uh, grow very quickly on on the ends, and then that makes them blow over. Along with our friend this uh, week. A month, the Palo Verde root borer. So if there's damage to the root, if there's uh, uh, damage from the insect eating the root or um, from a root rot of whatever, those are the trees that are going to blow over. And you don't see them blown over a lot in the desert. It's the ones that we plant and then trim up to be shade tree. You look at them out in the mm-hmm. desert and the tree canopy and the branches come all the way to the ground. So they've kind of completely protected themselves 360 from the wind. We trim them up, leave all this huge end weight so we can yeah. sit under it for shade tree, and that wind comes along, and, you know, it's like a big sail on a ship. It just picks the whole tree up, and especially if we haven't watered deep enough, we haven't moved the irrigation out to the end of the tree line, and the root ball's smaller in the middle, gets a little wet from the rain, and it's just... Absolutely. <laughs> yep, you got it. But if you could walk the desert and look a little closer, you'll see that they're self-pruning. When those branches get too heavy, they snap right off. And they grow in another spot. And and so those trees, you know, driving by on the freeway look like they're perfectly shaped. But you go up and look in close and you'll see that there's branches that just the whole branch, you know, splits off right at the trunk in desert trees. Wonderful. And our desert natives, we've got Palo Verde. Mesquite's not really native. We have a lot of them here. But far enough back, uh, I understand that mesquites came in. Uh, from Texas, like five, six hundred years ago, 
If my memory's a little shady there, but I did not know that. I thought yeah. the Velutina was native, and well, yeah, that'll that'll be a follow up <laughs> for next yeah. month's talk. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, fact check the the the, the velvet mesquite, mesquite. Yeah. but the ironwood still, in my uh, opinion, is is my favorite desert tree. It's the slowest growing, but I, there's just something about that ironwood on the uh, and, and it's the, majestic. That's a perfect yeah. word. Very much. They can live like to 600 years. So they are the majestic elder of the desert. Just just knowing that, how slow they grow when you see them mature, when you just have to respect it for, for as long as it's yeah, been around. I agree. Survivor. Y'all talking storm prep. You know, I'm looking at uh, rain log here, and uh, Queen Creek got over a half inch of rain last night. Lucky. Some, something, <laughs> something hit the Southeast Valley last night. I'd like to hear from a couple Southeast Valley residents. Did y'all see wind with that as well? Uh, uh, Gary says he woke up to a storm alert on his phone like at 1030 in Scottsdale. I slept through the whole thing. I didn't. I had no idea. I thought the brown sky this morning was wildfire smoke out of, uh, mm. you know, the Tiger Fire or something. But I guess we had a dust storm last night, Far East Valley. Would and love, and love water, a half, half an inch. That's it's, great. Yeah, just south of uh, it, Gateway Airport, right at Power Ranch, six-tenths well, six of an inch. Wow. That's really great for that area of the valley. <laughs> I didn't right. get anything at my house. No, not one, we didn't get one drop. And, uh, and so there's there's supplemental water that needs to happen with trees in the desert and, and in our area and in our residential landscapes. Um, if we're not going to get regular monsoon rains or winter rains, it's really important to supplement the trees. Um, just because they're desert trees doesn't mean they don't need water. And so I encourage people to put a little hose on a trickle and move it around the drip line of the tree and give them a deep soaking once a month. Um, an easy way to do it is to even get a soaker hose. And you get one gallon per foot per um, on the soaker hoses. And you can put two or three together and put them around the drip line. You can actually even run them to a, a, a timer that fits onto your home, your hose bib. And that's a way of doing it, you know, that way too. But um, supplemental water is going to be really important, especially in areas like Cave Creek where we didn't get any rain. So, And I had to replace my irrigation box timer recently. I mean, the old one, uh, you know, it's it's a computer element that's sitting on the side of the house in the sun for 18 <laughs> years it's just <laughs> you couldn't even see the screen anymore it was so uh blacked out but i haven't finished setting all of the timer i've got our few little lawn areas those are all on timers and working fine but i haven't reset my trees because i'll go and do them manually and that has really kept me on top of a lot of things like you know every time i turned it on i'll walk that Mm-hmm. that zone that's on and check for leaks and everything. Whereas otherwise, when it's all automatic, you can kind of tend to get disconnected. And I've always got my uh, little pruner and my loppers and, you know, just do supplement, you know, little cuts here and there as. Uh, well, I'm proud of you. As I walk it. and that <laughs> I'm proud of you on the maintenance on all that. That's really great. Um, but it's good to have trees on a separate line if you can at all. And there's, there's new um, timers, and the Ratio is the one I just installed. I can run the whole thing over my phone or my, my iPad. Um, I can do supplemental waters if I need to that way. 
So those are good timers. On your iPad. I could have used that over the last couple of weeks when we went to Iowa because that was the one thing that uh, when we got back after two weeks, there was a couple of the uh, tree zones that needed a little extra love when we, when well, we got exactly back. Well, that's exactly what I did last 4th of <laughs> July. I was camping up in, in um, Forest Lakes, got on my phone, turned on my water to my lawn, <laughs> and ran it an inch. And I follow the ASMET website for um, lawn watering guidelines um, AZMET, um, uh, the University of Arizona has 17, I think, satellite areas where they they um, judge evapotranspiration. They'll take in the humidity and the temperatures, and you can go on the website and follow their guidelines, and they'll tell you how much water you need. That's awesome. And- yeah, ASMET is a University of Arizona website on um, lots of different topics of weather. Uh, and if you're interested in growing fruit trees, they have the um, accumulated cold days that you that you want to follow too. So there's lots of good information there. And for anybody not familiar with that, what is the importance of the cold days? Uh, well, the tree, certain trees like cherries, really need a lot of um, accumulated cold hours of cold in order to um, set the fruit. Some less, and of course, citrus, our tropical um, type plant tree, uh, doesn't need any cold. <laughs> That's better so, known as chill hours, right? Correct. Right. Yeah, and depending on uh, what variety of tree depends on what you can plant in your yard. If you went and bought like a Macintosh apple, it would never set fruit in you know Phoenix, Tucson. So you got to know you got to look for your Dorsets or your uh, uh, Annie apples, which is not a red apple <laughs> that, that you yes. are looking for. So it's it's a matter of making sure that you're planting something that will uh, produce fruit for you if that's your goal. Yeah, and also on that website, you can download data from past years. So if you have um, a report or a research uh, that you're doing, you can have access to that from the university. And give that website again. Uh, it's Well, it's the Arizona Meteorological Site um, at A-Z-M-E-T. So azmet.com. Azmet. Um, or it's edu. probably dot arizona dot edu. I, I don't have it memorized, but uh, if you do that, you'll find it. We'll make sure and get that link uh, added to today's archive page as well. And talk about your extension office program. If somebody was interested in becoming a master gardener, you're the person to talk to. Yeah, I do the. Uh, I run the training portion of master gardeners, and master gardeners are volunteer educators that are trained. Um, through the University of Arizona's um, uh, resources and to fulfill our mission of bringing the information from the university out to the people. And so this has gone all the way back to, you know, Abraham Lincoln uh, creating these land-grant entities that are tasked with doing this for the states. And so we train volunteers, amazing citizen scientists, people who are also so big-hearted. They love to help people do better. And uh, we have a plant hotline where you can call in and uh, send messages, um, photos, and get uh, questions answered. Over 2,000 questions a year are answered by our Master Gardener volunteers. We also go to um, libraries and different festivals and, and answer questions. And how long does it take to become a Master Gardener? I'm sure, you know, everyone's learning pace is a little different, but, you know, how... How fast can you crank out a master gardener? Yeah. Well, we can crank a master gardener out in the 17 weeks of the course. 
And the, the good news is that we have publications that are written by the scientists from the University of Arizona. And I tell them, when you leave the course, you can be an expert on the topic of fertilizing citrus because you have the publication from Dr. Glenn Wright, one of our scientists. And so they can walk confidently out into the community and help people because of our um, quantity of publications. And then where does, how does somebody sign up for the, the course? They would go to the website. Um, it's extension because that's part of our land-grant name, sort of. So it's extension.arizona for Arizona State University. So extension.arizona.edu forward slash um, MG. Master Gardener. MG for Master Gardener. And are we in the middle of a 17-week course? We've just started. Just started. Mm -hmm. So you would be something you could plan for later in the fall to start on the next one. Yes. And um, so we have about 85 seats available. And we typically have 250 people asking to be in that position. So it it is hard to get in. Um, And people usually try multiple times. And we we try to accommodate everybody that we can, of course. Um, But uh, yeah. Your trees got you stumped? Call in your question. 1-888-767-4348. That's 1-888-ROSIE-FOR-YOU. And, Gary, the button does not work on my side, so I'll have you bring Dana in. He wants to know about... I want to ask you... I want Hello? Hang on one second, Dana. So, Miss Rebecca just gave out a website, and I know people are home right now looking for it because it's a really good program for the Master Gardener program. So, the actual website is extension, spelled out, dot Arizona, spelled out, dot edu, forward slash Maricopa MG. So... Just save everybody a little time this morning. So do you put in your county for your local extension office, and that will update it if you're in Pinal, Pima, Santa Cruz, whatever? Um, Well, we do have a a Master Gardener training in all the different counties. We have an extension service in all the different counties. And um, if you don't – if you just go to the Arizona. Extension.arizona.edu, you'll go to the extension. You pick your county from there, yeah. Very good. All right, now let's bring Dana in the conversation. He wants to know what kind of plant to put on the west side of a wall. Welcome to the program. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I just Googled because, you know, stucco is just out of my price range. And I Googled, you know, are there any vines that, you know, will grow in Arizona on the west side, you know, to, you know, take the heat away. And I was just asking for your suggestions on um, what I – you know, and then what time I can plant it. And how large of an area do you have to cover and space-wise? Um, basically two bedroom windows. I, I can't go any further because that's my front door and the sidewalk and, you know, whatever. But if I can just get those two windows, that that would be a big plus. And two bedroom windows. So it's it's the front of the home. So we have a front yard. So we've got a little bit of room to work with before the sidewalk and the street. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay, so um, you might want to try to break up some of that heat and create a little bit of a microclimate, Um, a a desert lacy type of a tree if you have a small area, um, maybe 10 feet from the house, and then plant vines and things behind it. Um, There are vines that do take the heat, the cat claw and the bougainvilleas, both just love the sun. Um, but if it's real extreme heat, you get that reflective heat off of the stucco and the and the brick, and your temperatures go up. You really want to go with more desert plants. But if you plant a little smaller tree or other plants 
that can can break up some of that heat, you create more microclimates and you have more diversity in what you can put on those walls. And if you layer it like that, where you've got a vine closer and then a tree farther out, as oh, the sun's yeah. moving, uh, you know, that one tree isn't going to shade the whole wall all day long. And with the vine as well. So you've kind of got a layered uh, defense against the sun, cooling off that heat gain that he's getting on those bedroom windows. Yeah, and that's the key, the heat gain. You want to block the sun from hitting your building because it absorbs it. And during the night, it starts to move into your building. And um, yeah, and you're, blocking you're, the, you're blocking taking the direct 30 solar degrees off the surface of the wall as soon as you shade it. You're going to take it down from about 130 to about 110 or 100 degrees. That's significant. It is. When you're paying for the air conditioning load inside that wall. Yeah, very, very significant. And if you really want to uh, do it right, depending on what type of plant you do select, you know, you look at the size of the root expected, and you may need to put in some kind of root barrier between the plant and the st stem wall of your home to make sure that in 10 years uh, we're not getting tree roots pushing up the foundation. That that protective root barrier will deflect the branches laterally along the the, the root barrier itself so you don't end up damaging your home. Well, that's n definitely necessary with the sisu. <laughs> <laughs> now, but I wouldn't advise anybody planting one of those. We aren't going to be able to take this call on air because we don't have quite the time. But Cindy wants to know, can she take her own saguaro cactus down? Why don't you talk her through what needs to happen with a saguaro cactus? To do what with it? Take it down. Take it down? Yeah. Uh, how big is it? <laughs> well, doesn't she have to tag it before she does anything? Not um, on your own property. I don't okay. believe so. Um, what? I don't know why anyone would want to remove it. Um, could you know? <laughs> you know, there, it could have just been torn up from woodpeckers. Yeah, and she didn't holes say the birds had really torn it up. Yeah, that's oh, usually okay. what happens. And so, if she said that, then it is a, a larger plant and. Uh, could be quite dangerous to take it down themselves. They should hire somebody um, to do that. I had a nine-foot one in my front yard. It got necrosis, and I had to take it down. Yeah. So it it's not something that we would recommend anyone to do. Each one of those arms weigh hundreds of pounds. Thousands in those big cactus, yeah. And, and, and I recently took one out of a front yard, and it was decayed at the base of it. And it was a hazard. Yeah, it needed to come out. Um but it's, it's so much weight. We came in with a crane, and we, we used a crane. Yeah. Heavy, heavy equipment. You think that's something like Arizona tree movers would do? I know they've got a saguaro moving truck. Uh, I don't know if they use it for complete removal. I don't know. That'll be follow-up um, number two for next month, yeah. Talking Trees. We'll be back in studio on August 14th, and we'll be talking about the weeping acacia tree. And our talking point for the month will be disease prevention for our trees.